Welcome back to Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion. In this episode, we talk with Brad Bryan, and there is so much heart in this conversation. It's a love letter to Albuquerque. It's a balm for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50-somethings who are finding their way. And it's a testament to the importance of looking at our differences as a source of our superpowers. Brad also introduced us to a new term, catastrophic quitting. There is a lot to enjoy here. Thanks for listening. I'm drying over, I'm drying overalls in the dryer and they make a lot of clunky noises because of the buckles or whatever you call it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do live in Texas now. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. How's your week been? Oh, good. I'm just ready for vacation. I'm so excited to be going to Oregon for a week and just not working and reading really trashy books. I have a whole set of just like trees and nice, even though there'll be no beach, but you know, mountain reeds and yeah, that sounds amazing. It's going to be good. And it was a little bit of a slower week for the first time. And so that was really nice. It was really good to just not have anyone else getting too sick. (laughs) Last graduation was Tuesday. All good. All behind me now. What about you? Um, This week has been very full because I'm traveling for work next week. So I've been trying to squeeze everything into this week. Um, Plus, we adopted a dog who got Giardia, who gave Giardia to my other dog. And uh, so we've had a lot of vet visits and food cleanup, and that's been awesome. Um, But no crises, really, if you don't count liquid poo. All good. Speaking of Giardia, I mean, when you hear (laughs) Giardia, (laughs) what does it remind you of? Uh, um, Big Bend. Yeah. uh, You know, our eighth grade backpacking trips. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. I feel like when we were in school, we had this incredible outdoor education program. (laughs) And they really put the fear of God in us that if we drank water that was not treated with iodine, Mm -hmm. that we would end up with Giardia and that it was going to last us the rest of our lives. That's right. We'd never poop normally again. (laughs) So drink your iodine and love it. That's right. That's right. So we did um, eighth grade. Oh, my gosh. What's the name of the? Bear Canyon. Oh, Bear Canyon, of course. Okay. The ninth grade was Bandelier. Yep. Tenth grade was Choose Your Own Adventure. I did cross-country skiing, and we built snow caves to sleep in at night. What did you do? I went spelunking. <sighs> That was really amazing and terrifying. Yeah, that would not be we, we literally had to like get ourselves into these caves that were like so small and so dark and so terrifying. I don't think I could do it today, but I did it then. Yeah, that's really scary. I'm picturing like damp and you don't know what you're crawling through. And I mean, those trips were way more hardcore. My kids take these like total car camping. They stay in cabins. 
I mean, we were thrown out into the wilderness. We had like one roll of toilet paper for 18 people. Yep. You had to do your 24 hours solo. Right. With your, oh, oh, here comes the (laughs) Hello. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Oh, you look so good. Cool. Give me one sec. I'm loving the beard. Yeah. Laziness. <laughs> the beard is pure laziness. Hi. Right. We were Hi. just reminiscing about um, Bear Canyon because my dogs got Giardia. And it reminded us of how hardcore they were about. You've got to put iodine in your water. If you drink any water directly, you're going to end up with Giardia for the rest of your life. And, yep. uh, I, I can attest now that you don't want Giardia. It's pretty gross. No. <laughs> no. Definitely not. Definitely not. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are, both of us, so excited to catch up with you and um, hear what's been going on. We start this podcast with the same question for every guest, which is, what have you been doing for the last 35 years? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, what I've been doing for the last 25 years is uh, I started as an audio engineer and now mostly I'm a producer and production manager for large scale live events. Um, so that can be anything from concerts to um, world leader conferences, uh, Things like uh, the NATO meetings or G8, or I just finished the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperative meetings, the first two of them of this year. Um, done presidential debates, uh, all sorts of different things. But primarily now I produce concerts, and then I also do audio planning for large scale uh, festivals. And I work at a really cool historic venue called Meriwether Post Pavilion which is in Columbia, Maryland. Um, It's designed by Frank Geary, a famous architect. And it's a super cool spot, 20,000 seat, state-of-the-art amphitheater. Um, And uh, I'm one of the house audio staff there. So I plan all of their festivals um, and I operate the lawn system uh, for the people with the lawn seats. Uh, I, I operate that PA about 15 times a year. I have two other folks that do it as well. Um, I just finished uh, doing the Capital Jazz Festival for my 11th year in a row. I do an 80s metal festival that 13 to 15-year-old me would be super stoked about uh, called M3. Um, Some of the things that I've seen there, I mean, I've had conversations with Sebastian Bach, conversations with Vince Neil. Um, I've seen all of the ridiculous bands like Crocus and Faster Pussycat and uh, L.A. Guns and every different incarnation of Rat or Wasp or uh, those kind of bands. So um, middle school and high school, me, at least sort of pre-1989, when I started to shift slightly out of metal mode, uh, would be very happy with where where I've gotten. <laughs> that is incredible. Um, So so I'd love to hear a little more about, you know, 89 rolls around. What were the decision points or inflection points that led you into that career? 
so I was always interested in music and I saw Kiss when I was eight at Tingley Coliseum. Started going to concerts in earnest about 1982. So, um, you know, that's, I saw REO Speedwagon and stuff like that, but then really like the metal, proper metal concert and go into every good metal show that came to Albuquerque started when I was about 13. Um, that hand in hand with uh, operating the little mixer that um, the Academy had. So when it was Mr. Adkins was the band director, he'd let me operate some stuff. I operated that mixer for things like, you know, the talent show or, or when, um, you know, I, uh, when anytime they would basically set it up for anything, I'd try to get my hands on it. So that started sort of a love of that sort of stuff. And then around 19, the end of 1988 or the beginning of 1989, um, Jared Greenberg and I both were introduced to Ian Parks. And that um, was where, where I really sort of decided that that's what I wanted to do. Once I saw real musicians playing real music without it being in an academic setting, like in the basement of a house in downtown Albuquerque, um, that was a life-changing experience for me and very formative. Um, I still get goosebumps when I think about that first night in the basement and um, that was the summer before so that was 88 summer before senior year um and you know I, there was no looking back from there for me uh as far as that stuff goes now it took me a long fucking time to get going like i was terrible in academics and i was a bad college student barely made it through high school um which you know uh was it, uh, we could get more to why in a minute, but the, uh, so, but that, that's where it all stems from is, you know, Pepsi generation into whatever incarnation of, uh, Ian Parks bands there were. And I never, I don't think I would have stumbled into that if it wasn't for JMG who got me, uh, so cool. who introduced me to that. So, well, you'd be happy to know that Jeremy Greenberg actually wrote the theme song for our podcast. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, I know we just lost Ian Parks, who of course was not a member of our um, of our school class, but many of us knew him. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I just ran into Peter Weldon pretty recently locally yeah. here. And so I still see them every once in a while and Matt. But um, I was gonna say, Brad, like my recollection of you in those years what you do now is uh, is absolutely no surprise. Like it was, it feels really not predictable, but not surprising at all because you just displayed, even at that age, a real passion for that and a real skill at getting that shit done to make things sound good. <laughs> so yeah, I, I all that so clearly. I like that stuff. I like, it's important for me to have have the my goals work wise be like achievable right like I, I don't i don't operate well knowing that i'm never gonna make I, i'm never gonna make it to the the finish line or make it to uh, or, or have perfection i can make a perfect show and i 
you know, there's a lot of them that are super fucked up and I've learned from my mistakes, but, um, I, I have made a lot of perfect shows happen from nothing. So, um, that's, that's, it's pretty cool. I, you know, something that I want to touch on really quick is one of the coolest things that we did back then was the community service plays, um, which were totally crazy, like a totally crazy thing. Um, and I, it all doesn't, I, I, I don't have, so I did a shit ton of drugs. I drank for years. I don't really drink much anymore. I'm not like a program type person, but I don't really drink. I don't really do recreational drugs anymore. I still am every day, all day long cannabis user, but for mostly for medical and psychological reasons. Um, but I was super fucked up for a lot of years for, you know, probably from 16 to 30, there's a lot of fog. So please bear with me if I misremember anything. But <laughs> those those community service plays were, were just totally ridiculous and fun and ad-libbing that stuff was some of the, <laughs> some of, some of the most, you know, the, the, arguably the most hilarious thing that I can remember from high school is that is those plays. So it really was <laughs> incredible how willing to be uncool we all were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially in our later couple of, like our last couple of years, our ability yeah. to just be complete goofballs. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with the makeup of who was in the class, but also I just think that level of comfort we had achieved by the end and really an eclectic group. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the, one of the, the, one of the things that is sort of anomalous about being in a small private school um, kind of graduating class where a lot of the people have been together at least five years, some of them seven years, um, uh, is that you, there's a lot more cross-pollination amongst, among social groups. It doesn't divide up the way that a public high school would have had, like, you know, the stoners and the metalheads and the skaters and the, and the drama kids. Like, even if you were one of those things in our community, you know, the jocks, like everyone embraced everybody. Um, and that, that's pretty cool and remarkable uh, sort of experience. Another thing to just note is that Albuquerque is filled with extraordinary people. They weren't all at the academy, but I, I know I would say well over three quarters of the most extraordinary people that I've ever met in my life from Albuquerque. So, wow. and I've met a lot, of, a lot of people. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, there's, there were a lot of, a lot of, uh, very interesting, very smart, um, very compelling people, uh, around there. So I have a theory about that. Maybe it was the time, maybe it's still consistent, but I actually think that Albuquerque itself was such a, I don't, I don't know if this is the right word, but very kind of um, unpretentious town that I don't think people spent a lot of their time worrying about a lot of pretense and could just actually focus on being pretty real. And, you know, when I think about living in California, I mean, the distractions that my kids have, which partly is just modern technology and other good stuff. But part of it is California and a real need to be presented in a certain way and be a certain way. 
And I always loved Jessica's stories of being like in her save the Lobo Wolf t-shirt and like dent like so like not interest not needing to be interested in all that stuff. I feel like we spent more time doing really just interesting things. <laughs> Absolutely. And and you know the just the number of, you know, a concentration of scientist children, professor children, um, all of that sort of stuff just led to just so many smart, interesting, um, you know, the uh, uh, people. Like, I wish, I sort of wish that in, after college, that in a lot of situations where I, I had gotten to know the interesting people that I came across in high school, in, in a similar way to that I did in high school. But once you get into real life and you're sort of out there, um, it's harder to find those sorts of communities. Although I have found those communities in college. No, all right. So when, well, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do that later. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Tell us what, what happened next. So you, you left school and I remember you distinctly like driving around the country in your truck for a little while, but then, you know, yeah. tell us what happens after, after you leave the Academy. So I did that, you know, my year off, they call it a gap year now. I visited a bunch of people at college. That was pretty cool um, and fun. After that, I went up to ski country where I lived in the trailer. Um, Carla, you visited there and saw the whole weirdness that was going on there. Um, and uh, then I went off to school in the fall of 90 um, instead of fall of 89, like everybody else. Um, I got to Washington DC and discovered that, you know, this, there was a lot more than just the student union ballroom, the El Rey and the sunshine and Tingley Coliseum, as far as places to see concerts. So needless to say, I pretty much majored in bong hits and nine 30 club my freshman year and nine 30 club is, was at the time a 260 seat club where I saw bands like nine inch nails and, um, you know, uh, a lot of, the, the first show I went to there was a band called The Wonder Stuff from England. Um, and over the course of the next six years, I went to probably 200 shows there um, and saw the, the ones notable ones that I didn't get into were Oasis on their first U.S. appearance. And um, I should have gone to see these shoegazer bands Ride and Lush. I had tickets to it, but I stayed in the dorm to play video games that night, and I kicked myself for not going to those two. But I went to you know two Nine Inch Nails pretty hate machine shows in one night. I went to a seven; they had a seven o'clock show and a ten o'clock show. I saw you know every good punk rock band in a two hundred and forty seat club: Green Day, Rancid, um, all the Descendants. Um, uh, you know, as they were all sort of coming up from nothing. Um, and not to mention went to a zillion other shows at, at venues. So I wasn't the best student. My parents at the end of my freshman year decided they didn't want to pay for college anymore. So I started to be a bicycle messenger um, in order to make full-time-ish wage um, to put myself through school. And that was super interesting because that was a whole crazy pirate culture of these people. I love cycling. I've always been riding bikes since I was five years old and BMX and road bikes and whatever. So it was a way to marry a love of cycling with a sort of love of counterculture and alternative jobs. And back then in the nineties, before the internet, messengering was cool. There were law books to take around every document that needed to be signed, every photograph of anything, every map, you know, there, there was no electronic document transfer. So 
it was awesome. And I met all these crazy people and I almost finished school. And in 1996, my father got ill back in New Mexico. So I abandoned ship, moved back to New Mexico, which with, with what was at the time, my future ex-wife, um, was there sort of floundering for about five or six years. And as that, uh, marriage was falling apart in 2000, I went back to DC to finish college. Um, at the end of that period, I did one more year of AU, wrapping things up. My wife at the time told me we were getting a divorce, at which point I said, all right, I can actually be an audio engineer instead of, you know, some office guy, which is what the pressure from that side was pushing me into. And so I sold all my things and moved. I went to Mexico for uh, about two months and traveled all the way down the Pacific coast back in a time before the drug cartels um, and just stayed on the beach with a bunch of fellow travelers. And that was really cool. And I'm super stoked that I did that because I love Mexico. After the Chihuahua trip that we went on in seventh grade, I was always enamored with Mexico. And uh, so I got to see and do a thing that now is not, you can't do um, because of the, the um, drug war situation there. So that was awesome. And then I moved to Vegas and I basically moved to Vegas in the in May of 2001. And I've been a full-time audio engineer and production manager ever since. So um, there I did a fair number of sort of Vegasy things like nightclub concerts and crooners and coasters, drifters, platters, kind of doo-wop uh, type bands. Um, and I left there in 2004 because I'd started dating Lisa, who um, is my current wife and... Uh, hopefully only wife left, um, in the, in the wife plan. Um, but, uh, we'll see. It's always, it's a work in progress. Uh, but, uh, so left, left there in 2004 and I've been in the Washington DC area ever since. And when Here, you, go ahead. you got to Vegas, did you yeah. know somebody to get into my, engineering? My did that was there. Not, not at all. I used the phone book. Um, I got, my grandmother was there, uh, so I could live for free. She was aging and needed somebody to sort of look after her. So it worked out very well. I stayed with her um, for three years. Eventually it got too much for me to take care of. So we moved her to Albuquerque so my mother could take care of her. But um, that was great living with my grandma and uh, hanging out and trying to figure out my new career. And but I, how I got it is literally I called every AV and sound company in the phone book until I got to somebody who was feeling talky and he told me who to call. And I went and interviewed and the next day got in a truck and drove 30 miles out of town to do a DJ gig. So um, yeah. it worked out well. And I lied a lot to get that job. <laughs> like I totally talked. I said I could do all sorts of things that I had no, no fucking clue how to do. Um, but... I figured it out. Um, so yeah, and that that my stint in Vegas included production managing and being the front of house audio engineer in a eleven hundred seat club called the Huntridge, which was a historic punk rock um, venue built out of an old a nineteen forties uh, proper vaudeville theater. Um, so that was super cool, and um, you know I had worked at the Sunshine on and off throughout my time in Albuquerque, never really in a professional capacity as much as I would have liked. 
I didn't really know what I was doing. I could say I was working shows then, but I was just sort of, you know, making the show happen without really knowing what to do. Um, really, I sort of hit my professional stride about 2000 and uh, about 2001, 2002. So I have a question. I'm sorry, Carla, do you want to go first? Well, I just wanted to ask one question about that story you told about like going through the phone book and just calling people, where did, where did you learn to do that? Like what, how did you know to just keep pushing? I I honestly think that any of my three children were all wonderful people and pretty ambitious. I think they, after about two calls, they would have just laid down and been like, (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) Oddly, I, I either have, ultra motive. I've always either had ultra motivation, like I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this done or zero motivation. So at that time, I honestly, my, my ex-wife and my ex-mother-in-law laughed in my face, like close laughed in my face when I said, I'm going to do this professionally and said, that'll never happen. You'll never be able to sustain yourself. So it, as a, I really wanted to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I, but I was always good at finding jobs like in before high school. I mean, in, I had jobs when I was 13 and 14, I liked military surplus stuff. So I went to Kaufman's West on Eubank and was like, Hey, give me a job. And they did. Um, I, I oddly have always just been able to bullshit my way into various, various employment. Sometimes they don't last very long. <laughs> Um, like, like my stint in the uh, late, in probably 97 or 98, where I worked at, remember Greg Newmark, um, my friend Greg Newmark and Julie Newmark, who's an Academy alum, uh, Julie Enberg now. Um, uh, I worked at their, Greg and Julie's father's engineering firm, doing contract staffing for the national labs. That only lasted maybe six months. I'm, I'm not cut out for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I can work 200 days in a row, no problem with a day off, with no days off and work 18 hour days every day and never sleep and have odd schedules, but tie me to a desk, tell me what to be there on time every day. And that's like the hardest thing in the world for me. So, um, well, I have a question about what it was like for you during your twenties, really until you felt like, okay, this career is going to work for me or I'm going to make this career work for myself. For me, hearing about that period in your life, it makes me feel like, oh my gosh, I would have been so anxious with all that uncertainty. I would have been so, um, it would have been a, a decade of misery for me. And yet sometimes the path is not obvious and you just have to kind of work your way through it. But I'm wondering whether you actually enjoyed that sense of ability, that sense of like, I don't care that I don't know what I'm doing next month. This moment is cool. Like tell me how, what was, what all that was like for you. So I always have been more interested in the moment than, than either the past or the future. And that isn't always the best way to, build a career, build a life, you know, get all the things that people want or think you should have like houses and cars and, and 
you know, retirement accounts and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I didn't think at all about any of that stuff. Um, I mostly just was like, I'm going to continue to do this. My only sort of goals before they were done was I always wanted to finish college. even And it, it took me a long time. It took me 11 plus years to do that. Um, and I always wanted to to have a career in entertainment, whether it was just a stagehand pushing boxes, just to be a part of it and be a part of that process. Um, I didn't think at all, like I, I had no, I was Jessica, I'm j exactly the opposite of you. I had no anxiety or anxiousness about it. And some of that's on account of, of some of my neuro differences, which we'll, we can get to later. But the, uh, I, I, I didn't care, man. Being a bicycle messenger is fucking cool. You're like wearing your stuff and your gear and you got your bike and you're in combat every day in traffic and fighting with cab drivers. And back then you could walk in and out of the Capitol. Like my coolest story from back then um, is I used to get these things called full hill multiples, which was every congressional office, every Senate office, every committee office and every office in the Capitol. So it was like 800 packages. And you'd have to you'd get like 800 envelopes and you'd walk around in all those buildings all day long and take one to every office. These days they do that with email. But one time I was doing that. This was before, this was when Sonny Bono was a congressman. And um, I was, it was right when alphanumeric pagers came out or it, it was the, the, the precursor to alphanumeric pagers. I was looking at my pager. I walked around a corner and I walked right into Sonny Bono, who was walking with some lobbyists and some sound. And he fell down on the ground and I helped him back up. And I was like, Congressman Bono, I'm so sorry. And he was like, oh, don't worry about it. And he just kind of went on. And then as he got around the corner, I was like, fuck, I missed the opportunity to lift him up off the ground and be like, I got you, babe. Um, uh, so we, I, that, that's one of my regrets about my time as a bicycle messenger. Um, but it, that was super cool. It was like a thing that when I talk about it or think about it now, I look at it on back on it with a lot of nostalgia. Um, still friends with a lot of people from that community. And all of them are like, you know, you know, crazy doctors and scientists at NIH and or, you know, a lot of them have PhDs or college professors and stuff. That was another group grouping of extraordinary people um, that sort of extended I thought, you know, the Albuquerque underground music scene was the was one. Albuquerque Academy was another. Um, Albuquerque in general was one. And then I sort of fell into that other group of extraordinary people, which was pretty cool. Really cool. So take us to maybe, you know, the past decade or, you know, or pick up from there and, and get us to where you are now. Okay, cool. So I, I worked when I moved back here in the in. 2004 moved in with uh lisa we got married later that year in 2004 i went initially on a few tours with some bands but i wasn't very good at that um i'm uh, those tours i was the tour manager where i was responsible for all the money all the lodging and directions and hospitality and media obligations and a bunch of things that I had no interest in. And I love nuts and bolts production. I like building the stage and putting the lights and sound in and big video walls and generators and, uh, you know, even backstage infrastructure like dressing rooms and 
catering tents and all that stuff. I don't really care for the other shit that goes along with the entertainment piece. So I was fucking terrible at all that. Um, I was the worst taker carer of people that ever existed. Um, so uh, I got a job at a local AV company and that was called RCI Sound Systems and very cool company. Uh, did a lot of everything from like a meeting with a cup like that everyone's used to with a couple speakers on a stick and, um, you know, a few microphones to put on people all the way up to big concerts. Um, I met a lot of fantastic people there who have gone on to do great things. It was sort of a training ground for people. But AV, if you like doing big stuff, AV isn't necessarily the way to go. So I left there in 2011. But all along, ever since I had left Las Vegas in the in 2004, I had been going back to Las Vegas and producing concerts for the Academy of Country Music Awards Ooh. and for um, the downtown Las Vegas has this thing called the Fremont Street Experience, which is a crazy three block long, 180 foot tall television screen that covers the, the street. And we did concerts down there for NASCAR weekend, for the Academy of Country Music Awards, for a bunch of different things. So I started leveraging all of the connections that I made during my time in Vegas to continue going back there and to start going other places to production manage large events. In 2010, my uh, mother passed away. And um, I, after that, I wasn't in, as interested in wasting away at a desk job, which is sort of what my AV company job had become. I was the basically the operations manager and also still an engineer in the field. Um, so I was working a lot and I started to get some freelance opportunities and took them and the rest is history. So um, I've been fully freelance. I haven't W2'd in 13 years. Um, and uh, so that's pretty cool. I own my own company. Um, I've done uh, a lot of crazy stuff, audio engineering wise, um, as well as production manager wise. Um, as I've gotten older, sort of especially in the last five years, I've started to do less audio engineering and more production management. I don't want to lift shit anymore. Um, I don't want everybody to yell at me anymore. Like when you're <laughs> in the entertainment industry, people yell at you all the time. There's a lot of yelling, like in film, video, you know, television and live production. There's a lot of yelling, um, you know, backstage culture becomes a thing, right? Like like the, uh, um, uh, you know, like when Ellen's show had a bad backstage culture of people yell, being abusive and yelling at people. Well, that happens for real. So I guess I'll be the one that yells or maybe doesn't yell and changes the paradigm of what leadership is like in this industry. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've tried, tried to focus on. I still do a little bit of audio just to keep it interesting. I'm a monitor engineer for music, which means I'm the guy on the side of the stage that uh, controls what the band hears, not what the audience hears. Mm. Um, and then I've done a lot of corporate front of house, which if you've ever been to any kind of large scale conference like AWS or a big you know, insurance meeting or educational meeting or union meeting, I'm like the guy sitting there playing the ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. And, and then you know, turning on their microphone and, and, and playing whatever shitty music they asked me five minutes before to walk up to. Um, like, so I, that, that'll, that'll, you know, I'm the guy out there with the console and all the computers, but I don't really, I, I've had a significant paradigm shift in my work 
because of some things that I discovered at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, if you want to talk about that, uh, yeah. maybe we, we can get into that. Maybe we should get into some of that because you know now you're fifty. Are you fifty two yet? Fifty one. Fifty two. Yes, in yeah. February I was turned fifty two. So yeah. um, my That's beard's funny. been great for at least twelve years. Um, <laughs> the uh, so. So yeah, I'd worked nonstop up to the beginning of the pandemic for however many years, 19-ish years. Uh, and um, when everything stopped, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I was focusing all of my energy on like being a dick at my house um, to, to my wife and uh, to anybody else who was around. Um, and uh, the... the that came to a head after a couple of months and I was encouraged to uh, seek some psychiatric treatment. And when I did, within five minutes, the you know classically trained psychiatrist um, said he wanted to refer me for a neuropsychological evaluation. And I thought that was odd that he would know that within five minutes, but he probably was looking at this and my blah, blah, blah speech and all of that. So long story short, I went, through a neuropsychological evaluation at a very famous practice here in Silver Spring, Maryland, called Sticks Rudd and Associates. And uh, I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, anxiety, um, ADHD, and some other stuff. Um, what people used to call Asperger's or high functioning autism. And uh, so immediately that answered a lot of questions about why I've always felt so out of place, mm -hmm. why I've always sort of scripted everything out in my head before, like I had planned 90% of what I was going to say in this call over the last couple of days, mm -hmm. um, why relationships were difficult me, for me, long-term friendships, why I got really angry about stuff, why I had so many academic difficulties. Um, it answered a lot of questions. It's a pretty tough to go through your whole life being like, why am I so weird and different and not know? Mm -hmm. So now that I know, it's incredibly empowering. I'm not afraid to tell people. In the entertainment industry, it's a superpower. My main thing that I've always been able to do is notice everything that's wrong or different. And uh, when it comes to something like safety culture in entertainment, electricity, uh, I, you know, hanging thousands of pounds of stuff over people, um, noticing all the wrong stuff is, is a superpower. Um, so, you know, I was always good at embracing my autistic, um, characteristics, but I didn't know, but knowing is, you know, like I say, very empowering and it's really changed my life for the better, much more, much calmer. After, as as I sort of transitioned back into work after the pandemic, I, there's a whole list of shit that I'll never fucking do again. Never, never, ever, never, ever do again. Because I know the toll that it takes on me uh, to, 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 you know, it. you can act like, you, you do this thing called masking and act like you're totally normal. Um, it uses a lot of energy. So imagine like using all the energy that you have to use to get through your normal day, whether it's work or family or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then also having to use an equal amount of energy to not be a fucking weirdo all the time. Right. Um, it's exhausting and, uh, and hard to keep doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. So you, you burn out um, and become non-functional. And that's what happened to me. Um, not necessarily 
from that buildup or from the lack of any outlet for my, my mental energy. Um, so all this shit explains a lot of stuff, like all the weird boundary issues I had in high school, like confusion about, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, and it's, um, I feel a lot better about myself and I'm a lot happier and a lot more content mm -hmm. um, and a lot more comfortable in my own skin. Um, so it's been a rad journey. Uh, I love that you use that word because I always, whenever I say the word rad, you are the first person I think of because I think you used it as a major part of your vocabulary in high school. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. Jessica and I have talked about this a little bit both between the two of us, but also with some of the other guests, just about kind of the labels that a lot of that kids today really sort of that sort of land on them, whether it is like an ADHD diagnosis or an autism Asperger's diagnosis or, you know, mental health diagnosis. And what I'm hearing from you is that that's been so helpful to you as you've been older. And, you know, we've also talked about some of the drawbacks of some of those labels where then people become sort of burdened by them. And I'm curious, like when you think about yourself back in high school, like, do you imagine that knowing that then would have been helpful, would have been potentially an obstacle for you? Would you have possibly thought, I can't do this because I'm this way? I mean, obviously you've had 50 years of living to kind of like prove that you can do a lot of things. But right. your 16 or 17 year old self learning that. Um, I, I, I don't know whether I would have felt as that it was as empowering, but I definitely could have avoided some situations that were weird. <laughs> um, the back then, right? Like they, they called you gifted. If you were, if you showed any, like I was in before the academy, I was in gifted and talented classes in, in you know, elementary school um, with a, a, a whole other group of extraordinary people, probably half of which had, you know, autism spectrum disorder, looking back at it. Um, and the, uh, it, I don't know whether knowing then and being armed with like, say, 1985 science would have been that helpful. It might have fucked me up really badly. I think I, I, being blissfully ignorant or being like, I know I'm weird. I know I'm different, but you know, I'm just going to roll with it and vibe with it. Once I sort of, after middle school, middle school was very hard for me. In sixth and seventh grade, I was bullied really hard by um, a bunch of people that most of them left the academy and didn't continue. Um, but the um, all, most of them, none of them in our class, all, you know, seventh and eighth graders when I was in sixth and seventh grade. Um, after, after you all came, uh, arrived in eighth grade, everything was cool uh, after that because, the, uh, you know, we had our own campus. There was nobody hassling me from above. The people that most of the people that were bullying me were gone. And I sort of embraced my weirdness and just rolled with it. Um, that was probably a better, a better tack, a, a better course of action than, being like, oh, I'm different and, and worrying about it. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to out anybody or anything, but I'm sure there's a whole bunch of more people that, um, in our group that in our, in our graduating class that, um, that probably are just as spectrum as me. Um, and that's just a, from observations of, 
you know, and some people are better at academics and some people are better at this or that. I, you know, remember Dr. Wong screaming at me about me refusing to learn. And I knew how to do all the calculus. I knew how to fucking do it, but I never got the right answer. And, uh, you know, I thought, what is it? Dyslexia? Is it, what is it? And, you know, look, you know, I'm comforted by the knowledge now that I wasn't refusing to learn and I wasn't dyslexic. I, it was that some things I'm fucking great at and some things I'm like not good at at all. And, uh, um, it's nice to sort of know what those things are. Um, but blissful ignorance when you're 17 and partying on the Mesa or whatever, like, or going to the, 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 uh, Motley Crue show at Tingley is way better than knowing, I think. So in your, in your both work life and home life now, being armed with more knowledge about the autism spectrum disorder, and the way it shows up with you, do you feel like the empowerment part comes from the awareness and the self-acceptance uh, or is it coming from, I now have the language for it to talk to other people about it? Or it could be the third bucket of, I now have skills. I've learned skills about how to manage it. I think it's a, it's a combination of all three. Um, the, you know, I, I know why I feel the way that I do. I know why I developed all these coping skills before the diagnosis and and I've you know shed the ones that are not helpful, like drinking was one that was not helpful. You know, when you're exhausted and you come home and you're like, ah, why was today so weird? That big glass of, of scotch is pretty fucking great. Um, but I don't need that anymore. Um, and the 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 uh, I, I I think it, it's. I, I'd say it's a probably pretty much a close, an even combination of all three of all three of those things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I just like knowing, you know. I think when you autism is weird, right? You know, one person with autism, you know, one person with autism. No two autistics are the same. Everything's everything manifests itself in different ways, um, but it's nice to know that I wasn't just that I didn't totally flame so many situations in my hit in my life. Like either like catastrophic quittings, catastrophic quittings is a cool thing. Like, you know, storm into your boss's office and huck the keys and throw a clipboard and be like, fuck you. I'm out. Um, but I have a whole, I have a whole litany of uh, a whole, a whole fucking gaggle of those like where uh, th throughout my life. Oh, and that's that's just getting to having it all boil up and and having it become too much to keep inside anymore um but it, it those sorts of things explains a lot of things or saying the totally wrong thing um, in the wrong group of people that has far-reaching repercussions that has happened to me professionally a few times mm -hmm. um and i just you beat yourself up about that those kind of things when you, one of the manifestations of of my autism is that I beat myself up over those things for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And now I don't have to beat myself up over those things anymore because I know why. And I can just be sort of resolute in, in, in the understanding that it's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, 
you know, like saying something to the wrong people or fucking up a, a business relationship. Those things happen to everyone. Um, it, and it, it, I can't focus on that stuff, especially not when like, you know, at times the safety of hundreds, if not thousands of people is directly, um, you know, is, uh, that is, is something that I'm responsible for. Right. So I don't want to get distracted by bullshit. Um, and so instead I focus on the important things and try to not focus on any of the ancillary stuff to my, it, at times it's fucked up. Like I, I generally have a whisperer that I bring with me. Um, like I've met people throughout my career that I can bring along with me as an assistant, or if I'm the production manager as a stage manager or somebody who knows my, my differences and can monitor them and give me the elbow when I'm talking too much or saying the wrong thing or taking the wrong course, uh, of action. And so I'm very lucky, um, to have found a handful of people that I can do that, that will do that for me. Um, and so that's nice to have a, like a sidekick or somebody who you like. Now, when I talk to clients now, the, the main person that I use for that, I'm like, you, there's no just me, it's a package deal. So you got to take both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have to learn how to like manage our, or compensate for the things that we aren't as strong at. And we get better at that as we get older, but some of that information really illuminates how we can do that. Right. Yeah. For, for sure. sure. Oh my gosh. So here, let's talk about other shit, not, not work and not autism. Let's talk about the cool things that I like. That's great. Yeah, actually, we were going we to yeah. focus on that. We'd love to hear a little bit about things that you do because they bring you joy in your life and maybe some of the things that just are surprisingly joyful about being in the age you are now. And then right. after that, we're going to do a little little uh, tour back to high school. Just some quick. Okay, perfect. So I love Star Wars. Yay! I like all, all I like basically all science fiction. I still love Star Wars. You know, uh, those of us of a certain age, we saw those movies in the theater. I've I'm still obsessed with all of it. Um, <laughs> I like uh, tattoos. I'm heavily tattooed. Uh, working this way, and we'll probably start on this arm sometime soon. This arm's full of stuff. Um, and uh, I love pro cycling. I watch it like the average American dude watches NASCAR. Um, uh, obsessed with it. I've gone to the, the Tour of Italy. I've been to the World Championships. Um, I've been to when they used to have the Amgen Tour of California. I've gone to that. Um, and so um, sort of any big European or international travel that, uh, that I, I do sort of is centered around going to bike races. Um, so that's pretty cool. Next trip, hopefully next year is, uh, Northern France, um, and Belgium in the spring to, to watch my two favorite races, which one's called the tour of Flanders and it's cobblestone short Hills all over Belgium. And the other one's called the, um, Perry Roubaix and it's, it's racing on flat cobblestone roads that oh. date back to Norman, uh, to Roman times, um, from, uh, in, in Northern France. And those are always like the first two weekends in April. Um, so hopefully, hopefully next year, if not the year after, um, we were sort of trying to get it going and then the pandemic hit. So that, that one's a bucket list thing. I love gardening. Um, uh, I have a very 
robust uh, garden uh, that's actually in my front yard. I'm part of this grow food, not lawns movement. Um, I'm super into sustainability and zero waste lifestyle. Like I was the first dude with the, with the reusable shopping bags and my own water bottle. And up to the pandemic, I had gone four years, four years up to 2019 without taking a single plastic water bottle. And I'm out in fields building giant stages and festival sites all the time. The pandemic fucked that up, but uh, I still like, I'm all about, I'm a great resource for zero waste products. So if you want to know like what kind of laundry detergent, what kind of paper towel and toilet paper and tissues, hit me up. I got lots of zero waste tips. Um, Can you send that to me? Because I'm serious. If you have a little list, I will add it to the I will add it to the show notes and the website. Yeah, absolutely. We'll a little thing on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Give me a second, and I'll do it real nice with all the websites. And yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> I'm kind of a, a little sheet. We'll add it. I'd love I'd love that. I love interior, I love interior design. Is the other thing that I'm into. Like I've totally. I have a 1949 like brick shit box house that was built to for returning World War II veterans in my cozy little neighborhood just outside the DC beltway. Mm. Um, I've designed a new, new, two new bathrooms, a new kitchen and a full basement remodel. Um, all of which, uh, um, I, I did, did all the sort of picked all the materials and paint colors and all that stuff myself. Um, with my wife's input, but like, like, other things that the autism makes easy is that I think about those things and just without articulating them for years and years and years in my head and I can visualize it all again that works beautifully and take you know empty six semis and build it into a thing visualizing all that is helpful but uh, the interior design piece uh, I think is a lot a lot uh, it has a lot to do with that and then I love dogs and um, I we've rescued uh we're on our second set of dogs my wife and i we had husky purebred siberian huskies uh the first set and then this second set that um, we're down to just one of uh we're half husky half german shepherd and big like 90 pound dogs and i just lost the one of the two that was mine in march to old age we we had to put him down and i'm still sort of reeling from the loss of of that dog but um you know, dogs give us many of the best days of our lives and one of the worst, but you get over it and move on. So mm-hmm. when I'm not so busy after the end of summer is my money time because my amphitheater is open. Um, I have a big client in Pennsylvania that I, uh, it's a casino, a Hollywood casino, uh, which is a East Coast sort of casino chain. But I do concerts there all summer. And then I have a big financial a credit card company client um, that I do a big A-lister for every year. In the past, it's been Drake, Pharrell, Lizzo. Last year, it was Jack Harlow. Um, this year, it's it's still to be named, but it's generally like either an, an underplay, which is like a person that needs to play a 15,000-seat arena in a like 1,400-seater, or um, some of those, the first three I mentioned, Drake, Pharrell, and Lizzo, were all on the beach during Art Basel um in miami uh so um so that one's in october and then i'll shut it down for the end of the year um but uh the uh once i'm done with with my hectic sort of now through mid-october we're going to explore getting new rescue dogs we don't think of the one that we have now will make it 
quite that long as he's the same age as the other one. So, um, but rescue, adopt, don't shop, please. Anybody who's listening to this, don't buy a dog. Don't get a dog from a breeder. There are literally every rescue in the entire United States is full. Every humane society is full. There are dogs everywhere that need homes. Please adopt. We just adopted a little pity mix a couple of weeks ago and she's awesome. so cute. Um, but she's kind of had a rough go and she needs a lot of training, but she just couldn't be more precious and her ears are all floppy. You know, when she pops around, Oh my gosh, she couldn't be cuter. Clover. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Love it. Well, and you know, you just, you're living an extraordinary life as I actually would have predicted. I mean, you always were cool for for all of the ways you may have seen yourself in high school. You know, personally, I always loved being your friend. I loved being your prom date junior year. I loved having classes with you because you always made it spicy in class. Um, And you know, I just, I always thought of you as someone I really enjoyed um, knowing and being around and who made life interesting, you know? So maybe it was hard for you and maybe your perspective of that time was that you were weird and awkward or whatever, as many of us felt when we were younger. And that may all be true. And I'll, I'll tell you, you, you were such like a, a shining um, presence in our class, so... Oh, thank you so much. That, that's really nice. I want to share the memory of you and I going to winter ball together sophomore year. And there was yep. a snowstorm and it's girls. The ice. Died, ice. And so I drove up to the foothills to pick you up in my land cruiser. And we were skidding all over tramway. And then we got to Scalo and parked. And we were walking into the restaurant and there was a patch of ice and I slipped and fell and I was mortified but you were even more mortified and I don't know if you remember this but the first thing you said is my mom told me to hold your elbow I wasn't holding your elbow (laughs) oh my gosh then we had a fun dinner and went to the dance but um it's a very distinct memory for me (laughs) Oh yeah, that I I was so bummed. I I felt so bad that that I should have. I, I was always taught like you know don't don't let any uh, any lady that you're on a date with fall down. Uh, like that's the worst thing that could happen. So I was just a horrible. All right, Carla, are you ready for the lightning round? <laughs> okay, so we're gonna do a little lightning round, and we're gonna kind of go back to high school for just a little bit. So we have some questions, and if there's one you want to pass on, you can pass. If you need to do a little bit of extra um, sharing, that's fine. But we'll just kind of go through them, and uh, you can give us the scoop. So I'm going to start. I'll do the first one this time, and we kind of alternate. Um, Okay, you ready? Question number one. Who was your high school crush? Pass. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question number two. (laughs) Munch pudding or veal birds? Disgust. Veal birds. I like. I like both. I, I liked. I liked almost everything, including the weird ass taco meat. I liked everything that came out of that kitchen. <laughs> lunch, lunch. Academy lunch was a good. Was fucking good, mm-hmm. and I liked it. 
Loyal Gore forever for you. (laughs) All right. What clothing brand or maybe other sort of brand did you rep in high school? I was an early adopter of Oakley. I was the first one with any Oakley stuff. Um, Sort of douchey still, but probably still have Oakley glasses and lots of Oakley things, but not in a motocross sort of sort of way, but more in uh, maybe skiing and cycling sort of way. Awesome. What car did you drive in high school and how did it meet its demise? Yeah, so this is a good one. I drove an 82 S10 pickup yeah, you and did. it met its demise in 1991 in Caballeros neighborhood when I ran over um, uh, uh, Peter Parnig's mailbox with my truck and it was a big, a, a big, um, uh, um, Adobe mailbox, so it exploded and it completely destroyed the truck. And then my truck ended up in this lawyer named Bruce Pasternak's front yard, and it broke his mailbox too. So <laughs> that was no good. We think, and Kevin Cole was in the car, and Matt File were in the car with me. Perfect. Um, and no so. injuries. No injuries, luckily. Um, but I was being a dumbass, driving like a dumbass, which was my MO back then. And um, so it's a miracle that nobody died in any of the multiple inc- drive, crazy driving incidents. And I apologize to everyone involved. <laughs> well, that truck was iconic for sure. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> so this next question, I feel like it's almost unfair to ask this one of you, but uh, you know, if you can just think maybe off the top of your head, but when you think back to high school, did you have a high school song or a band that you just say, that was me, that was mine? I mean, high school in general, like, so I have to expound on this one because I didn't like cool music then. It took for a minute until I discovered like the Descendants and the Stone Roses mm-hmm. and sort of as Nine Inch Nails gained popularity and ministry. Those specific things got me out of metal mode. Um, and this was before grunge was a thing. Uh, I, I, I was already on to better music, but if I had to be, have something, I was the first person by far who discovered Guns N' Roses in our, in our, our class. So would you say, welcome to the jungle, baby. and roses though i don't think but i maybe it is oh no maybe it's not but i remember i had for a really long time i kept it as a souvenir from high school a recording of you and joanna garcia and a few other people who during our scavenger hunt went to one of those music booths that was one of the scavenger stops yeah cliffs and you guys saying every rose has its thorn and i just still have i still have that Tape somewhere in a box. Brett, my play. 
Brett Michaels about it. He's playing at my casino um, in August. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should mail it to you if I can find it. Yeah, you, to you totally should. You um, and maybe you should resell it so it's listenable. Scavenger hunts were awesome. That that was an awesome thing. That I, you know, another thing, cool thing that we did that I'll, that I'll never forget, and that were some of the greatest, the most fun that I ever had. <laughs> so, good on you. What high school teacher had the greatest impact on you? Nancy Spencer. Awesome. By far. She's um. She might be a guest actually on the pod. Yeah, we're thinking about interviewing her. So the coolest, I mean, it, it's cool um, that, you know, her, her whole story is super cool. But the coolest thing for me is that her son is a Formula One mechanic um, on uh, and had went all the way up through all the through IndyCar and everything. But now he's not a mechanic. He's a performance engineer for um, uh, for the Aston Martin Formula One team. And I think that's the coolest thing in the world. That's awesome. So, yeah. Um, oh yeah. She, she had more impact on me trying to tell me that I was, I was brainwashed being sort of a Reagan Republican. And the second that I went to college, I realized all that was true. And I'm a super lefty now. So um, <laughs> it, it only took, it only took going to a real city and seeing what the world was like and seeing what, what all that stuff really meant. So, uh, you know, I thank her for, for slapping me out of my, you know, Republican dad stupor. <laughs> I tried. You wouldn't listen to me, so. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it was, yeah, I know. I, I know, but. Yeah. What was your favorite hangout spot? You know, both at the academy, but then also maybe outside of school, too. Um. So, obviously, at the academy, I, I sort of liked the, you know, the the amphitheater at, um, outside of Sims. I was thinking today about how I liked when we used, when you used to be able to go get a frontier cinnamon roll in that weird little snack shack thing in the Sims lobby. That was, that was cool. Yeah. Um, but I think after a minute, I just, the only place I really hung out other than maybe in the study rooms in the library, I think I, the, the hanging out in there was pretty fun until they wouldn't let us, be assholes in there anymore um but it was a around like the the music area back there where the band room was and the, um you know that that was a pretty good hangout but then my other hangout was a dion's parking lot um and then any place where there was drinking or weed smoking going on so you can name a zillion of those i you know i will say and this is at the risk of being controversial is i would bet that a shit ton of people in our class and a, and a few people in the class below us and a lot of people in the class below that the first time they ever smoked weed was with me so <laughs> we can do a poll yeah yeah <laughs> uh, when you think back on high school do you have a regret um no not really um i, I my one thing is i wish i wish i had been nicer to people um and I, I don't think I was a total asshole, but there were people that I was unnecessarily not nice to, and I wish I'd been nicer to people. And and that's what, sort of you give what you get kind of thing. I just, I think, uh, I think I should have been nicer. If you could um, get into the, you know, the proverbial DeLorean, travel back in time, 
knowing something now and tell something to your 18 year old, 16 to 18 year old self, what would it be? Um, it would be, don't worry, just keep, keep moving forward. And eventually everything's going to fall into place. What would be the title of your high school memoir? I'm glad I met all these people. It was with a subtitle. It was fun. It was weird, but I'm ready to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) (laughs) That's so perfect. (laughs) Every way. (laughs) Who are you? Glad you're just like perfect just as you are. It's so great. I've loved this conversation with you. It's been so fun. It has been so much fun. And I I feel like it, it was really interesting for me to hear how when you were in that period of not really knowing what you were doing, that you were in the moment and not trying to like think ahead to car, house, family, retirement. And I feel like my life has been the opposite where I was super like ladder focused, check that box, check that box. And then I got to my forties and was like, what's this all about? You know, right. And at that time, I was so used to being goal oriented that I literally asked somebody, so my goal is to be less goal oriented. (laughs) Well, Brad, it's been so great to chat with you. And I think we will not take up too much more of your time. But just to say, you know, looking forward to seeing you, I hope for our 35th come back. Yep. Yep. I don't do super well with big crowds. I'm better in small groups. So let's see. Um, we'll, we'll see. Um, okay. if I, if I, if it's something I think I can handle, but you know, I've penciled it in already. So. All right. Awesome. Great for, your, for your time and your candor and love to about what you're doing. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me. Loved it, Brad. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Oh my gosh. That was so awesome. Oh my God. <laughs> oh so great he's such a treasure so, for sure oh so great it makes me feel better about my children oh gosh. because i feel like like ellis does not have the check the box i'm going somewhere like you know yeah and i'm and that's fine mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean what a cool place he's ended up and um really neat Really neat to hear him talk about all that. Yeah. I mean, if anything, this is a podcast I swear, like the entire generation of young people should listen to because it's like, you know, take it easy for goodness sake. Right? Yeah. Don't stress. Keep on keeping on. And you don't have to have been a certain way to be really happy and successful. And happiness Mm -hmm. does not mean happy every day or happy all the time or you know it's about fulfillment and continuing to learn about yourself and others it's just like he's just such a great model for that Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.